Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Of all the systemic economic problems developed nations face, inflation is the one policymakers fear most, because inflation disrupts our society like no other problem. Historically, inflationary periods have led to radical political shifts, as well as a variety of other morbid symptoms that have steered nations down new historical paths. Well, Inflation is back with a vengeance now, and I decided to speak with Martin Sandbu, European economics commentator of the Financial Times and author of The Economics of Belonging, about the current situation, as well as the last time policymakers had to deal with serious inflation, nearly half a century ago. It is the highest inflation across the advanced economies since the early 1980s, uh, when it was coming down due to that how especially Paul Volcker, the Federal Reserve Chair at the time, put the U.S. economy uh, through a very bad squeeze that we remember led to very high unemployment and so on. It was really the energy shocks of the 1970s, the oil price shocks in 1973 and 1979 that set off a decade of high inflation. And we haven't seen the like since then. Today is not quite like then in in magnitude. Um, But what we see, what I observe in conversations with policymakers and, and, and analysts is how the, um, what was learned in the 70s, or the, the trauma, if you like, the policymaking trauma of the 70s, that sense of losing control of the monetary system is very deeply ingrained in how people are thinking about what they're doing now. My own worry is that it's a bit too ingrained and we are panicking a bit, but I think that is really what is on policymakers' minds now, we can't let the 1970s happen again. Well, it's, it's interesting that that old line about generals fighting the last war is often on my mind when I think about the way people think are talking about this current bout of inflation. And we're at the 1970s already. I lived through it. You were probably still in elementary school, weren't you? I was, I was born in the 1970s. Oh, good God, yeah. man. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I, no, I mean, it, it was life-altering. I mean, I was 23 in, in October of 1973 when the oil price shock happened. And my entire life plan went out the window. You know, you could go around the world for very little money. And, you know, you worked part-time jobs and you kept traveling and you kept looking for what your path in life was. And then all of a sudden it was extraordinary. I've got some numbers here. In 1973, the inflation rate at the start of the year in the U.S. was 3.65. And by December, it was 8.7%. And by the end of 1974, it was in America, it was nosing up towards 11, 12%. In Britain, it was 16%. And by 1975, in Britain, it was at damn near 25%, which is earth shattering. So you, I guess I understand why people are concerned about it, but it was 50 years ago. And the world is entirely different now. It, it was entirely different. I, I would also point out that the American experience will have been special. I mean, you grew up in the U.S. The difference in in real incomes between Americans and Western Europe 
was much higher then. I doubt, well, I would have to kind of look at data for this, but I doubt that a young person in Germany or France working part-time jobs could have traveled around the world as easily as an American 20-year-old could have done you know, before the 1973 price shock. Uh, so I think it, in some sense, the uh, there was a trauma everywhere. But uh, in the US, you had the additional, you had the beginning of the erosion of this relative advantage that Americans had over Western Europe. So I think that came on top. But one thing we have to keep in mind here is, is it's, it's very hard to understand money in general. And inflation has two aspects to it. One is that, oh, prices go up, I feel poorer. But economists will look at real incomes, inflation-adjusted salaries. If salaries and prices go up more or less in sync, your real purchasing power doesn't fall. You can still buy the same things, but it still feels bad because it feels like you're continuously playing catch-up. And it's not entirely clear at the moment whether... to what extent people's real incomes on the whole are being eroded. Um, Actually, what policymakers are worried about is that they won't be eroded. This is what they call the wage price spiral. People see prices going up and they go on strike or they demand things from their employer to make wages go up just as much. I mean, that, of course, would secure that they could still spend as much as before in real terms. But it's precisely what central banks are trying to stop because they think that then you get into an unstoppable spiral of ever-rising prices. What I think of as prices, like, can I get to France this summer, as opposed to what central bankers think of prices, which is, what are the cost of the commodities, the basics that that you build an economy on, slightly different. Um, You know, prices have shot up this time around. And it seems to me that it's a kind of producer's version of pent-up demand. For for a couple of years, nobody could raise their prices because we were all in lockdown or some variation of lockdown. And just when people were thinking, well, maybe we can mark up our prices a bit to make up for the money we didn't make in 2020 and 2021, suddenly you've got a war on in Ukraine and, and this is made uh, oil and gas infinitely more expensive than one might have expected. So, you know, prices change, but consumer prices, you know, this is what pe- this is what people are always arguing about in periods of high inflation. Now, do you think that prices at the moment, consumer prices, are reflecting the actual cost, or is this a bit of gouging going on? I think on the whole, they are reflecting actual costs because everything we see is driven by the cost of of energy, uh, gas, electricity, oil, and and petrol or gas in the the US, in US parlance. Uh, That's really what started it. Go a year and a half back, not even a year and a half, but this inflationary episode started in the spring of 2021. And it started in energy prices uh, and it started in sort of goods prices rather than services prices because of some of these bottlenecks uh, trying to get uh, physical goods from East Asia to the US and and Europe. Um, Now, I I don't rule out that there's some gouging going on. I, I don't agree with those who say 
the start of this is that companies are putting up prices. I don't think that's the case, that gouging is the cause of inflation. Uh, what I think may be the case is that because energy prices are going up and that is forcing some companies to put up the prices of goods and that is seeping into the prices of services because they also use energy to get around, to buy inputs and so on. Uh, that allows companies that don't face the greatest cost pressures to also raise their prices uh, and pocket a larger profit margin. And there is data showing that corporate profit margins in the US across the whole economy are at record highs, the highest in something like 50 years for however long they've been measuring this particular measure of, of corporate profit margins. So I do think that the inflationary push started with some companies having to put up prices to cover their costs. But then a lot of others who didn't need to didn't need to put up their prices quite as much have done so as well and are left with a fatter margin as a result. There's some tentative evidence that something like this is true in the UK as well. But the, the European data in general is a little bit more laggy. So we're not quite sure about this. The newspapers here have been full of back to the 1970s headlines because we've had some sporadic transport strikes over the last couple of weeks. You're not seeing that then as the situation. I think there are three very important differences, maybe four between now and the 1970s. One is that energy consumption, in particular oil consumption, is a much smaller part of our budgets on average than they were back then. I mean, the flip side of that is to say it's easier to adapt. It's easier to you know, do a little bit less. There are alternative energy sources for companies, for example. That's not much consolation to somebody who has to drive to their job every day and have no alternatives. But economy-wide, I think we're in a place where it's a bit easier to, to basically stomach these high energy prices. Uh, that's one difference. A second difference is that 1973 and 1979, that whole decade was also completely uncharted territory in terms of the international monetary system. 1971 was a year when the US went off the gold standard and let the US dollar float. And that basically unraveled the entire post-war system of fixed exchange rates. Now, floating exchange rates are probably a better system for a, unless you have a, a world government. But at the time, it was so new and so chaotic that you had enormous volatility in exchange rates. And that made things a lot more volatile in domestic prices as well. We don't have the same volatility in exchange rates now as we had in the 1970s, because it's a system that's long been broken in, the system of floating exchange rates. The third difference is what we talked about at the beginning, that central bankers think differently now. They they have a memory of the 1970s, if not a personal one, then a, an institutional one. Um, and everybody, because it's also in the media all the time, wants to avoid the 1970s. So people are coming into this. Policymakers are coming into this with, with a very different mindset. And, and my worry is that they'll be tightening too much rather than too little and will very quickly be done with inflation as a problem. Uh, and have the much worse problem of higher unemployment, fewer jobs, no wage growth, and so on. The fourth difference uh, has to do with the labor market. You had 
high degrees of unionization in the US, in Western Europe, in the 1970s. And unions were adamant not to let their members take the brunt of higher prices. In many countries, you even had legal mechanisms for indexing salaries to prices so that salaries would automatically follow inflation, consumer price inflation going up. And so this worry about a spiral where higher prices lead to higher wages, higher wages lead to higher prices, and so on in an unstoppable way, there was a much more realistic fear in the 1970s than I think it is today. Interesting statistic. The oil shock was at the end of October. Uh, Ted Heath, a conservative, was prime minister, and he was about, he was trying to impose a kind of wage price regime just before this happened. Anyway, the British government offered the National Union of Miners, who was the first big union group, you know, in in particular to the UK was that so many of the industries were nationalized when, when unions were negotiating, they were negotiating with the government about their pay settlements. The Heath government offered, brace yourself, a 13% pay increase to the miners. And the miners turned it down and said they were going out on strike. And they did. And Heath called an election in early 1974 asking, who runs this country? And the answer was, not you, because Labour was voted back into office. But those days are long gone. Margaret Thatcher came into office. I mean, I think her intention was from the time she got in was to confront the miners and break their power, which, of course, she did five years after she became prime minister. The thing about working people is we now live in a different world. Unions have far less power. Work is... We could talk about the gig economy. It's more casualized. People have many different, you know, they work for many different employers during the course of their working life. There's one other thing that I think is important, and that is credit, personal credit. In 1973, people didn't have credit cards, or they did, but not many. Nowadays, if you lose your job, you live on credit. You, live, you max out your credit card until you find your next job and then try and pay down your debt. So that well, consumption... For a long time, is that even if you do have a job, you live on it, credit because, because jobs <laughs> haven't paid well enough. Exactly. And, and actually, when we worry about inflation and the cost of living, we shouldn't forget that in the 30, 40 years of low and stable inflation, in many countries, salaries, certainly salaries at the lower end, did not follow the average economy or productivity growth up. So wages, real wages, actual purchasing power was stagnating for large groups in many Western countries throughout this era that central bankers like to call the great moderation, so stable, low inflation. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit impatient with, 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 with this received wisdom that low inflation is important to protect the poorest and that high inflation is a threat to the poorest. What we've seen in the US in the last year or two is that this supposedly excessive demand economy where it's easy to get a job, easy to change jobs, hard for employers to 
to find or retain employees. What we've seen is that it's people at the low end who have had the highest wage increases. And, you know, a striking difference between the wage increases for the lowest 25% of employees and the highest 25%, you know, something, you know, never seen for half a century. So it's not all bad. Now, we'll see now, you know, this year, uh, is this particularly high inflation eroding all of those wage gains at the bottom? And does it hit the poorest harder? It may do because they always spend more on energy and fuel. But, you know, let's not forget about what's gone well in the last year and a half, um, especially in the US, where, where you see this equalizing development in, in wages. You don't really see that in Europe, but, but in the US you do, and we're not celebrating it enough. Uh, what, what would you expect to see? Look, there was a debate uh, last year about whether the rise in inflation was uh, transitory or, or permanent. Uh, I mean, that, that debate was kind of overtaken by events and central bankers became embarrassed to use the word transitory. I'm not embarrassed to use the word transitory because I think what we've seen is a series of one-off but sequential shocks to the economy that have all driven inflation up. You had the reopening of the economy with bottlenecks in supplying the goods everybody wanted to buy. You had a first increase in energy prices in the autumn of 2021 when uh, Putin started cutting gas deliveries to Europe and gas traders saw, oops, there's not going to be enough gas, better go and drive up prices. And then, of course, you had the war in Ukraine. All of these are things that will make things more expensive just because it makes it more costly to produce things. That goes for food as well. Of course, Ukraine is a big food producer. But they're not the sort of things that make prices keep going up forever and forever. They're one-off shocks that lift prices once. And if only one of them had happened, we would have expected inflation to have come back down by now. Now, the fact that you have three of these shocks in sequence doesn't make each of them any less one-off. So I still think we will see these, uh, these price pressures go away by themselves. And we may well find in half a year's time that all the tightening that's done by central banks is going to end up giving us the opposite problem. Now, that's a very minority and even an eccentric view by now. Okay. Most people. What is the opposite problem? The opposite problem is that inflation stops, but we have thrown a lot of people out of work. In fact, inflation will have stopped because we throw a lot of people out of work. That's, uh, you know, that, that's a feature, not a bug. That's part of the desired mechanism here. Uh, we want to make sure people feel enough squeeze on their finances that they stop spending quite as much. But of course, the easiest people to make spend less are the people it's easiest to throw out of work or the people who have the tightest finances to begin with. So, so this is what's going on at the moment. It's a very worrying situation. And central bankers know this. And they're not happy about it, but they think that their main job is to bring inflation down. But I think you can have too much of a good thing and it's, it doesn't help you very much that uh, the petrol price has stopped going up or your electricity price has gone down a bit if you suddenly find yourself without a job. Uh, so that's my worry being the opposite problem. But as I said, that's an eccentric view. Most people think that the biggest danger now is that inflation takes hold because people expect it to continue. They demand wage rises that aren't sustainable for businesses. I mean, the point we made about profit margins makes me doubt that a little bit, but it may be true. 
Uh, and then you get back to a 1970s situation where, because everyone expects prices to go up by 15% a year, they do go up by 15% a year. And we, we, we get into this endless spiral of trying to play catch up and everyone feeling miserable. So it's not just, it's not just policymakers that fight the last war. It, it's social expectations that are looking backwards rather than seeing the present with a certain degree of clarity. But I, I think that that becomes the worry here is, you know, what came out of the 1973 and then later 79 oil shock, and that oil shock was related to the Iranian revolution. We, you get to a place where politics becomes the expression of people's dissatisfaction and you get radical new forms of government. I mean, that's what, what happened in the Anglo-American world where you had Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan elected into office within a year of each other. And they completely changed the, the expectations of what government can do and what and they completely reorganized the economy. And I do worry, this is me fighting the last war, that if this inflationary period goes on for another year to 18 months, you will find that people themselves, society, will want to have major political change. I think that's quite right. Uh, and I would add that it's not only the Anglo-American world, because the intellectual or soft power, if you like, of economic thinking in the US and the UK it's still tremendous. Uh, we saw that in the 70s and 80s, this turn to the right and to more liberal market thinking was replicated everywhere else uh, to greater or lesser degrees. And I would add that we have already been seeing this, right? this deep dissatisfaction with how the economy has worked over the last 40 years was a big part, I've argued this in, in my book, The Economics of Belonging, that we've talked about before on this show, that was a big driver of the, the rise of populism, the Trump and Brexit uh, revolutions in 2016. And I think a change in the economic orthodoxy uh, to, in the last few years of the last decade, where we've seen uh, a return of the state, basically, also among centrist politicians, those who were convinced uh, you know, market liberals 20 years ago have now embraced a much stronger role for the state. All this already happened before this inflationary episode. So we're already in a world where everything is a bit in flux in terms of what is the what is the hegemonic view of how we're supposed to run the economy and, and society more generally. So I completely agree with you. There's a big chance. It's likely that this episode changes things profoundly because they're already changing profoundly. Now, in which way, though? Um, I find very hard to predict, uh, and I can see things going in two completely opposite directions. One is that the current inflationary spike, which clearly is a loss of control, nobody saw this, nobody in charge saw this coming, and it could discredit what I see as improvements in economic thinking in the last five years. It could discredit biodynamics, for example. We see this, people saying, oh, you spent too much, the stimulus was too big. Um, I actually think the big stimulus that Biden and even Trump put in place, the, the checks to individuals and so on, that was overturning the mistakes of the past of stimulating too little. But now we see that there's a, 
there's an attempt at correcting the correction, if you like. So that's one possibility that we get a return to the previous orthodoxy. But that can't be sustainable because it wasn't very satisfactory. The other possibility is uh, that it intensifies the demand for change even more. And it throws out the entire way of thinking about inflation that we have seen uh, that has been dominant in the last 30 years and that's driving central bankers tightening and raising interest rates now. And people may end up saying, look, if, if the choice you're giving us is between very high inflation or throwing lots of people out of work, well, then we want something completely different. Uh, what that completely different thing will be, I really have no idea. But I do think that unless the, uh, the guardians of orthodoxy, if you like, the leading economic thinkers, the leading economic policymakers, centrist, mainstream politicians, unless they come up with something quite different quite soon, then the field will be open for much more radical and often crazy ideas in the way that we saw in 2016, but now maybe coming back with a vengeance. Hmm. Well, that's why they call economics the dismal science. You know, it's interesting. While you were talking, I was thinking, John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. And I, when I think of how senior policymakers are desperately trying to correct the uh, economy now, I think, no, in the, in the long run, you're all Keynesians. You can come up having been complete free marketeer, almost a libertarian, but the minute your income is being jeopardized, suddenly you want the state to, <laughs> to organize your rescue. There's a saying among economists that everyone's a Keynesian in a foxhole. Uh, you know, when you're in, in real trouble, you do want the state to intervene because it's, it's basically the last thing you've got. And it's true that in every crisis moment we've had over the last 15 years, people have reread Keynes. I have reread Keynes. People have reissued biographies on Keynes. There was one called The Return of the Master. And it's extraordinary how relevant a lot of his thinking uh, is. I've recently been rereading his pamphlet, How to Pay for the War, which came out in 1940. And what struck me there was that he not only gives an analysis of how at that time it was necessary, of course, to reallocate a lot of society's resources into the means of, of war, uh, armaments and so on, securing food, uh, but also to repress prices to, to ensure there was no inflation. But in addition to that, he said, as we embrace these radical policies in order to be able to win the war, we should do so with a view to creating, not restoring the old society once the war is over, but to create something completely new. So there was this element of, of very principled opportunism, if I can call it that, saying everything is changing. And the way we should design the way, the way we should design our war economy should be one that allows us to build an entirely new society after the war. And that is, of course, what happened, not just because of Keynes, but, but people like him, his thinking uh, was, was shared. And you got the post-war consensus, you got European social democracy, you even got an American version of, of social democracy. And I've been trying to argue in my writing that we need to do the same thing today. We need to think of what's happening as a war economy. The cost of living crisis is not something that should, uh, should let us lose focus on Ukraine. It's the same problem as Ukraine. It is part of how the costs of war are affecting us, and we should, uh, we should organize ourselves accordingly. And as we do that, we need to think about how we build 
our future society. We haven't mentioned it yet, but of course the decarbonization agenda is, is central here. With high energy prices and people smarting from high energy prices, uh, it's very tempting to uh, you know, go back and drill more fossil fuels out of the ground and give up on decarbonization. But I think that would be a terrible mistake. So we need to find some way of learning to live with high energy prices. And maybe that means accepting some inflation. But that means you need a whole other set of fiscal and budgetary policies to protect those who are least able to bear this whole new cost structure. As a, pes- as a pessimist uh, at this moment, actually, I try not to be too pessimistic. I've got a young child. Um, as a pessimist, uh, I-, I would say, if we don't do this, you know that the other team is thinking about using this crisis for its own advantage. So it is, I think, incumbent upon people who do think about decarbonization, about, you know, have it, the opportunity that crisis presents for building a better society to start acting on that. Anyway, Martin, thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoy talking to you. Next time, face to face. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And yes, indeed, face to face soon. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Martin Sandbu. A reminder, his book is called The Economics of Belonging, and if you visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com, you will find a conversation with him about it from two years ago. And while you're there, please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.